This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 23rd at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. If you'd have a seat, uh, if you have your Bibles, you open up to Genesis chapter 48. So I am uh, excited that this is uh, getting us close to the end. So we'll do Genesis 48, 49, and 50, and we'll be done with Genesis a long journey through it, but I'm glad uh, we went through it. It's a very important book, and uh, we'll go on to some other things in a couple weeks. I'm going to go through the, the chapter verse by verse. I'm going to do it in small chunks, so if you would uh, follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we've got free Bibles out in the foyer. Uh, feel free to grab one. But I'm going to read the first couple verses and then get right to work. Genesis chapter 48. Verses 1 and 2 say this, After this, Joseph was told, behold your, behold, your father is ill. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Now, this is an interesting passage. The whole chapter is interesting. Multiple chapters are interesting. It's important to understand who Jacob was and who he is in this moment. Uh, he was born um, some time ago, obviously, holding his twin brother's heel, Esau, as he came out of the womb. And he was known as the supplanter. Someone who schemes to take the rightful place of another. And that pretty much characterized his life. In his early years, we don't know exactly how young uh, Jacob was when he did all these things, but certainly uh, much younger than he is now. He was far from faithful. He would not be characterized in his early years as a faithful worshiper of God in any sense of the term. He was a, at best, deceptive mama's boy who basically lied a lot, he lied twice to his brother, he lied to his father, deceived to get his way, and even in all of that, really was trying to manipulate or control God so that he could get what he wanted. That was in his early life. So after 147 years of life, which is how old he is in this chapter, 147. After 147 years of a life full of sacrifice and sin, of prosperity and pain, Jacob, I think, finally comes to represent a man of faith. It's possible that Jacob has only become a man of faith in the last 17 years, which is the time that he is in Egypt. But even if that's the case, even if he's only been faithful for the last 17 years of his life, I think there's something to learn even in that. That it's never too late to be faithful. It's never too late to start to worship God, to obey God, to point others toward God. I often talk to retirees and they, they kind of look at their life as if like, well, that's it. It's like, dude, Moses didn't start till he was 80. So get to work, Right? <laughs> you got 40 more years. Despite how Jacob began, despite how he, in many ways, perhaps wasted the first years of his life, Jacob is going to, I believe, finish well. 
And he's going to make the most of his last breaths in this life, which are recorded in these chapters. It's one of the longest deaths recorded in Scripture. And it's important for us to take note of what he says. He first spoke about his death uh, back at the end of chapter 47 when we were last week. And at that time, you remember that he made Joseph swear. Swear you will not bury me in Egypt. Swear you will take me home, my body home, my bones home, and bury them with my fathers in Canaan. So Joseph swore. But it would be 17 years from that swearing to when he actually died. And it's likely that some point in that 17 years, he began to be pretty sick and old and dying to the point where he's laying in a bed. He's been laying in a bed, I think, for some time now. And for anyone who's been lying in a bed for some time, whether it be in an extended hospital stay or some kind of sickness, you, you can only watch so much Judge Judy and Price is Right where you're like, all right, I'm going to think about some things. And, and that, that, that still time allows you to really start to reflect. So I think Jacob has been sitting in his bed for some time, laying in his bed for some time, reflecting on his life. Maybe he's thinking about all the events. He cheated his brother. Remembering the reconciliation with his brother. Remembering the time he wrestled with God. Remembering the time that he worked for Laban for so many years. Remember when he married sisters and then married their servants. Remembering the, the horrible things some of his sons did. Remembering losing his son and then being renewed or reconciled with his son again. He's had time to put some final reflections together. To consider what his last lecture would be for his descendants. And I always love to read last lectures. It's a fascinating Google search to Google last words and to hear the final words of different people. And these are Jacob's. You wonder, what are the final most important words going to be? You know, it's like, the meaning of life is... Like, what? And it caused me to really consider um, what mine would be. What would be my last words? If I, if I had the opportunity, right? If I, if I die like in a shark attack, it's probably just, ah! Like, that's it. That's all you get. But if it's, you know, if I've got some planning, I know it's coming, what would my last words be? Would I, would I in my fragility and in, in, in having laid there for some time, would I just start to talk about like the different tragedies in my life? Or would I talk about the victories, the great things I saw? Would I, would I focus on what, what, what has happened? What had been? Or, or would I focus on what could have been? Or what might have been? Or what should have been? Would I focus on what I've achieved or what I failed at? And what I wish it would happen? I think really that the larger question perhaps is this. Would my last lecture, would my final words center on myself or the Lord? Because all those things, the tragedies in my life, the victories in my life, the successes, the failures, what could have been, like really you could easily make that about yourself. Is that the last words that I want 
my life to be characterized by, the things I should have done or didn't do or did do. You know, according to Romans 12, if you read that, it says that our lives are, are supposed to be acts of worship, that our daily living are these sacrifices, living sacrifices. That, that we're called in everything we do, whether we're washing dishes or preaching sermons or anything in between, right? That we are called to give glory to God in whatever we do. Whether we eat or drink even. That everything we do preaches or has the potential to preach something about God. We're living sermons and if that's the case, then we are perhaps always preaching or either preaching truth about God or we're preaching lies about Him. But it seems like with all the breath we have to say stuff, our final breaths are perhaps the most powerful words or at least one of the most powerful moments we have to proclaim something. Because at death, it's interesting, not that I've faced death. I imagine I will someday. I know I will someday. But when you come face to face with death, like in that moment, you have nothing left to lose. In that moment, you have no one to impress, which in many ways is how our life is kind of largely governed. We do things out of fear. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to lose face. I don't want to lose wealth. I don't want to lose security. Or I want to impress. I want to get approval. Like we, We're governed by those things a lot. But when you're about to die, it's like, who cares? I got no one to impress. Nothing to lose. Here it comes. Right? I'm going to tell it like it is. And this is what we hear in Jacob's deathbed sermon. We, we hear what he truly believes about life and what he hopes and desperately wants others to believe about theirs. Powerful. Let's see the first things he says, beginning in verse 3. Jacob, who is Israel, Israel's Jacob, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring and you, or after you, for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance." Let's stop there. And I know a lot of times we'd read that and go, yeah, so what? But remember, in the context of this deathbed sermon, Joseph is summoned because dad has gotten ill, and likely he's been ill for some time, but it's kind of like, okay, this is it. You better come and see your dad because it's about to end. And the next chapter, we'll see all the boys come in. And so this is really the, the final moments. Joseph has his... Two of his sons, his first two sons with him, he has other children, but he has his oldest and his youngest, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when he arrives, it says, it says that Jacob kind of musters the strength to get up. So he's been laying down, you know, like Charlie and Chocolate Factory's grandfather, just laying there in the bed, and then he gets up, 
Here we go. He's kind of positioning himself at the pulpit. And he's going to speak. And you can imagine they're just waiting to hear. Like, what is it? What is he going to say? And the whole, everything he says, including chapter 49, will include prayer. It will include reflection. It will include instruction. But what's interesting is that it's bookended and really woven in between God, God, God throughout. He begins and ends with God. And often when someone's about to die, like in the movies, you know, it's usually like a criminal, something's about to be hung, like any last words, right? It's an interesting question. And the answers are even maybe more interesting. Because these aren't necessarily the most important words ever spoken, but they might be the most powerful ones. It's like when someone asks, what are your last words? They're going to reveal in that moment, it seems, the, the, the things that have really governed their life up to that moment. Even if it's like a, a movie with a bad guy, you know, or, or they're like, yeah, well, this is what I think. And you're like, well, that's what's been governing your whole life. These things. Just make sure you do this. Okay, there, that's the most important thing to you. And you don't have to be dying to share these last words. I think that we all get words of wisdom growing up from our parents, mom and dad's words of wisdom. And you think about that. You know, dad always said, and some of those things you probably would never repeat, but you have those phrases, those concepts, those ideas of like the most important things. And the truth is, Jacob has a lot of wisdom to share. He's, he's 147 years old. He's got a lot of wisdom to share about a lot of things he could he could, okay, boys, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a dad or, or a husband. This is, this is about work or money, relationships, all these things. He, he does have those things to share, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But the interesting thing is the more often we talk about those kinds of things, we're really just talking about ourselves. What we know and what we've learned and what we regret and how we would do things different. But what we see here is that he wants to share with them things that are going to carry through life and even past death. Jacob doesn't simply want to pass on some earthly good wisdom to his sons and his grandsons. Jacob wants to pass on his faith to God. How do you do that? So the first thing that Jacob shares, the first thing that Jacob speaks is, I believe, his most important memory. What is it? His first meeting with God personally. He recounts the story that happened in Genesis 28. And if you know the context of that story, right? He deceives his brother, and his brother's like, yep, as soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill him. Mom hears that, and he's like, I'm out of here. You need to get out of here. And so he flees home under the auspices of like, I'm going to go find a wife, but he also doesn't want to be killed by his brother who is very angry with him. So as he's leaving Beersheba, Going to his mom's hometown, he stops for the night on the border of the promised land, and that is when God meets him. So God comes to him in a dream. He gives him a, a wonderful vision of the ladder going up and down and the angels and it's connected to the earth, but then he said some things as well. He makes some very specific promises. He tells Jacob, behold, I am with you. 
and I'm going to be with you wherever you go, and I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to make you a great family and a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. This is the first thing that Jacob shares. His deathbed sermon begins by recounting the promises of God. The most important words Jacob ever heard. These are the words that were told to his grandfather. The words that were told to his father. These are the most important words that God told Himself personally to Jacob. These are the words that have given him strength. The promises that have given him perspective. The truths that have given him hope. These are the most important words that Jacob has. And the most important words that Jacob has are not even his words. They're God's. Essentially, he says, Boys, I love God. Maybe more accurately, God loves me. God loves me. God loves us. Even though Jacob had not really for most of his life been super close to God, the truth was God was always close to him. Which poses a question for all of us. What are the promises? God's promises that you have staked your life on. The things that... that Govern your lives, really, as you put thought to it. The truths, even the verses that you hold on to, that give you perspective, that give you strength, that give you hope. The ones you turn to in need. The ones that you would pass on to your friends or your children should you have the opportunity. Here's one of mine. 1 Timothy 1.15 my neighbors knew me when I was a high school teacher, before I was a pastor, knew me before I had a tattoo. They kind of assumed, like, I guess when you become a pastor, you get a tattoo. That's just how it worked out for me. But they asked, hey, we noticed Sam got a tattoo when my wife was at their house one time. These are non-believing neighbors. She said, oh yeah, it's, um, it's like 1 Timothy 2.15 or something. I don't know what reference you get, but they grab a Bible. I don't even know they had a Bible. They like blow the dust off it, open it up, and they're like, Women should remain silent. <laughs> and they're like, what? And Kim's like, no, 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 that's not it, right? That's right, my life verse right here. God, talk about bad witness, right? No, that's not what it says. 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the greatest, or the chief. That's one of my life truths. And what is that? i got to remember who I am. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and I know just how impoverished and poor I am. I want my children to know that. I want my children to have the courage and strength to admit weakness. The courage and strength to say, yeah, actually, I am bad enough that I need a Savior. That's a powerful truth. But I also want to remember 1 John 1.9. Right? John says, like, if you're, you think you don't got sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's an important truth to remember. Truths like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 that I'm really holding on to 
in recent days, trying to understand what this means. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. For this is the will of God for you in Christ. Ashley says, give thanks at all times. For this is the will of God for you in Christ. That's the will. The will of God is for me to give thanks at all times. I can remember a few times that I wasn't quick to give thanks for. But what a message to, to share with your children. Even as you're dying, give thanks at all times. Powerful stuff. And there are others. There's others in the Old Testament like Proverbs 3, which I'm sure you've heard at some point. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't trust yourselves, kids. Trust God. And there's a promise in there. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And what He'll do, He will make your path straight. They may not go straight through where you thought they would go but they will be straight. Like, what are those truths? Like the the last words, like Jacob's last words begin with the promises of God. What are those promises that you go, this is most important. This is the first thing you need to know. We need to have those. You don't need to tattoo them on your body, but you need to have them. We know Jacob wants to pass on his faith because At the same time he shares those words, he actually declares his desire to adopt Joseph's oldest sons. Which seems weird. Um, Essentially, Ephraim and Manasseh will be given Joseph's inheritance. And if you read through Joshua, you see that the, the tribes, they each get an allotment of land. He's not merely revealing then, Jacob, that this is what I put my faith in, guys. He actually is instructing his grandsons where to place theirs. Why, why is that a big deal for his grandsons? Well, for all intents and purposes, they're Egyptian. They're Egyptian. And guess what? Really wealthy, powerful Egyptians. They're the kids of really the most powerful Egyptian apart from Pharaoh. Where do you think it's going to be tempting for them to find their identity? Tempting them to find their strength and their hope. But what does Jacob tell them? Don't identify with Egypt. That's not where your inheritance is. Your inheritance is in the Lord's land. With the Lord. And the truth is, Ephraim and Manasseh will never go to his land. They will go there to bury Jacob probably. But they'll never live there. Their descendants will. Identify with God's people, not with the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of the world. That's what he tells them. Powerful deathbed stuff. And then you get to verse 7, of which I love, and I guarantee you'd skip over if not for me stopping you. Verse 7 is just powerful. Verse 7 says this, As for me, so he's like, here are the promises, I want your two kids are mine. They're going to get the inheritance. And then he says, as for me. It gets personal. When I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. So he's talking about his journey home. This is when he was coming to meet Esau. He eventually did. 
But he continued to journey. He said, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. So she was buried in Bethlehem. She died. Now, Jacob, who I believe is demonstrating he's a man of faith, is not just like this, this faithful religious blessing. It's the last thing he has to say. and He actually, in, in very kind of just plain terms, is being very real and raw. You can imagine this old man looking at Joseph and remembering perhaps the face of his mom, Rachel. And if you remember, um, Rachel is the woman he loved. And it's almost as if you're kind of eavesdropping on the, there's a moment like where he's like, okay, here, the Lord told me this. And he's like, but as for me, man, your mom, she died. We buried her. It's like you're eavesdropping on this intimate conversation between a dad and his son. And the dad is just going, man, I just really miss and I love your mom. I really loved your mom. And I was writing the sermon, I got all, yeah, I can feel it now, I get that tight throat feeling, thinking about my own bride and what I want my kids to know, like, no, we're not perfect men and women, husbands and wives, mom, but I just want to know, I love your mom, I love your mom so much. And that's, that's a lesson enough. Jacob truly loves and loved Rachel. That was the woman that he wanted to marry. That was the woman he was willing to work seven years for. And then he got tricked into marrying her older sister, of whom he fulfilled his vow to her. But then he's like, I'll work another seven years for the woman I truly love. And they said that that seven years was like a moment because of the great love he had for her. And it doesn't even matter why he loved her. So, like, what's the deal? I see she's super cute. She, like, Awesome and something like what is it? Doesn't even matter. He just loved her greatly, and because of her death, he had great loss. You know that the one thing in the garden that was not good before the fall doesn't mean it was sinful, just mean incomplete, impertinent, not good, was that man was alone. And that doesn't mean that it was necessarily only talking about marriage, but it was talking about this connectedness that 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 people need. And they experience it at a depth in marriage that's very powerful. An intimacy that is um, difficult to quantify and qualify. But it's one of our deepest needs. And Jacob hasn't been alone this whole time, but he's certainly been lonely. But think about this. Like, it can't just be that. It can't, I mean, that's how I, it can't just be like, I really loved your mom. <laughs> All right, let's go finish the blessing. It's not just that, because he's, rem- why is he remembering this? What is he teaching them through this? So think about it. As he's dying, he clearly has memories flowing into his mind about that time. And let me color in the other things that happened during that time because there were some wonderful things and some horrible things. He likely remembers when the Lord came and spoke to him and said, you need to go to Bethel and leave your father-in-law. And he told his wives that and they said, yeah, let's go. Just, you know, getting spoken to by God again. That's powerful. He remembers probably arriving where he was in Bethel and they constructed an altar and they worshiped God. What an awesome time. Lord, you brought us out of this incredibly difficult time. We have all kinds of flocks and, and wealth and we had nothing and I've got these children and he's excited. It's beautiful memories. He remembers that's 
where God officially changed His name to Israel. He affirmed that, and then He affirmed and reaffirmed His promises to Him. See, I told you I'd bring you out. I'm going to make you a great family, a great nation. He's looking at all His flocks and all His kids and going, Lord, You're doing exactly what You said. Joy and victory. And so He has positive memories, but on top of that or around that are some really dark things that happened at that time, like the death of Rachel. She went into labor with his youngest son, Benjamin, and she died giving birth. And he probably remembers about that same time. If you would go back and read, you would see that his oldest son, Reuben, decided to sleep with one of his wives, the servant of Rachel. Then you would also read that there was other deaths that happened, namely his father shortly after that, Isaac. And so, what does that all mean? Like, what is this this memory that has these two sides to it? Well, I think that this part of his deathbed sermon, if you will, is quite sobering. It's sobering the fact that it sees that even the most faithful among us will endure and suffer the consequences of sin. The fall affects everyone. But in looking back for 147 years of life, Jacob also sees that the promises of God and the pains of life are not enemies. They're actually companions. We later see that his son in particular, but I believe Jacob had influence on this, that every evil thing that was brought into his life or he brought into his own life was used by God to bring about good for Jacob and his family and even the world. But I think the most precious gift he gives is a gift that I think some of us Christians really struggle with. And I would say some of us Christian men in particular struggle with. He gives the gift of perspective. And what I mean is this. Jacob gives us a picture of a man of faith who can trust God and be sorrowful. He can trust God and he can weep. He can trust God and he can have regrets. He can trust God and say, this hurts. I trust God, but this hurts. And this hurts for a long time. And that doesn't mean you're unfaithful. We have this weird way of separating those two things. Of like, well, faithfulness means I'm like, well, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. zippity doo da. Jesus is wrong. I mean, come on. At what point is it okay to go, man, that just hurts and it still hurts and it's hurt for a long time and I trust God but it still hurts. What a gift. Especially to boys who are told by some men like, you know, you don't cry. Or by the religious men like, you know, the Lord has His ways. Like, let's just be a little more real than that. And I love that little snapshot. It's so brief. One verse where Jacob's like, yeah, that, I didn't like it when your mom died. It was really sad. But it's bookended with the Lord. I trust the Lord. It's okay to be real. It's okay to hurt. doesn't mean you're unfaithful. What a beautiful gift. Let's look at the last part, which is long. I'm going to read 8 to 22. As the rule 
chunk or meat of this deathbed sermon. It says, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, that's Jacob, when he saw their sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Look what God has done. And that's, that's, look what God has done. God promised, look what God has done. Not, hey, what a coincidence. I'm so glad I'm not dead before I could see. God has done this. Then Joseph removed them from his knees. So these aren't like big boys, it sounds like. That would be weird. Moved them from his knees. He bowed himself to the face of the earth. It's important that you read the details, right? So, so Joseph takes his kids off his knees as he's sitting there talking to his father who's dying. He bows before him and then he's going to push his sons forward. He said, Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand. So you can imagine, he's somehow sitting up in the bed. This is Jacob. Joseph's like this. He's got one son in each hand and he's pushing them towards his... So his right hand's going to his left. Look, that's important. Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. Manasseh will be his oldest son. And he brought them near him, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph. And he said, so he's going like this, right? So he puts him up there and he goes, now, Joseph's head's down. He doesn't realize this yet. Jacob's blind. So he doesn't know which boy is which. Mind you, he didn't even know who they were. Right? Because he's like, oh, is there kids with you? What? Okay. And he pushed them forward. Yeah, this is Ephraim Manasseh. Okay. And he'd say, by the way, daddy's on the right. He doesn't know. So he's going like, for whatever reason, I would say, of the Lord, he's going like this. Okay? He says, the God... Here's the blessing. Before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, and Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this, is, this one is the firstborn. I mean, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I'm, I'm blind, but I know what I'm doing. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Likely that's Shechem, but we'll talk about that another day. So up to this point, he's saying, God, 
loves me, guys. God has loved us, and I love him. I love my wife. But he also, at this point, I think, shows us what it means to truly love your children. Final section is the most important. As I said, he invites his sons, and he's going to give them this patriarchal blessing. He is blind, and the boys are positioned in such a way because the right hand of the father is the greater blessing. And that's reserved for the firstborn. So that's how Joseph arranges it. But then Jacob does the switcheroo on him. He doesn't realize it to the end. He steps up and wait! So we'll visit that in a second. But let's just look at the blessing of what he actually says. What he actually blesses these boys with. And, and in that, he reveals some things about God. And in revealing some things about God, he's revealing things about his relationship to God. How he's experienced God. And in many ways, how we are called to experience God. And in like, explaining what this relationship is like, it's not just this is what God is like, it's also this is what I'm like. So the first thing he calls God is a shepherd, right? That's the first part of the blessing. Before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Now, for those of us in 2017 in Snohomish, Washington, we probably are pretty clueless about what it means to be a shepherd. Okay? Jacob is not. Jacob was a shepherd his whole life. Jacob worked under Laban as a shepherd for 20 plus years. Jacob's Sons are shepherds. They're all shepherds. Shepherd, 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 shepherd. They came to Egypt. They're shepherds. They're taking care of Pharaoh's cattle and livestock now. He's a shepherd. He knows what a shepherd is. And in knowing that, he also knows what a sheep is, right? If he's calling God a shepherd, he's calling himself a sheep. Now, I don't know if we know anything about sheep, but I did a little reading, and we kind of believe sheep like this little fluffy little cute sheep, right? Like, oh, they just do whatever. Sheep are horrible, okay? Sheep are, first of all, super timid, easily scared. Now, you go, well, who cares? They're fraidy cats. Well, imagine trying to, you know, lead a flock of sheep and one gets spooked, right? Chaos. Welcome to the world of being a pastor. But chaos, right? It's difficult. So what's Jacob saying about himself? I'm easily scared. I'm easily spooked. Sheep are not just easily spooked. They're actually very cruel. They're mean. They're actually very competitive. Sheep are actually uh, one of the most diseased animals, or easily diseased. They're destructive. That's why the Egyptians hated them. They destroyed like pastors. Right? And sheep are relatively defenseless. So it's not like you have any sheep ninjas, right? There's no sheep guards. There's people guarding sheep. Sheep are weak, easily killed, easily scared off from the flock, and then attacked by a wolf. You know, all those things that Jacob is thinking and knowing about sheep, he's revealing about himself by saying God is a shepherd. He's saying, look, God has, God has dealt with him in his fears. God has provided for him and, and cared for him and protected him and led him and put up with him. Because God is a good shepherd. 
He basically says, in all my travels up to this day, God has always cared for me, though I have tried to run away from him. He's always chased me. He's revealing something to these boys, even as he prays over them. God's a shepherd. But he also says something interesting, which I don't think I have a slide for. And that says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. I still believe he's talking about the Lord and he basically said God is a redeemer. Like, well, what does that even mean? Well, think about his life, which has been very difficult in many ways. Through all the abuse, all the loss, all the bad decisions, all the rebellion, all the prosperity, and all the famines. God has been there. It says God has redeemed him from all evil. Remember, he, when he stood before Pharaoh, he's like, I'm 130 years old and every day of my life's been evil. And much of that's been Jacob's fault. But Jacob believes that God has rescued him from all evil. Even the evil that he has caused. He hasn't been saved by his own wisdom. He has never been saved by his own strength. He has not been saved by dumb luck. He has been saved by God who has the power not merely to deliver despite the evil, but actually through it. And he tells his boys that. He's a redeemer. He's a rescuer. Even if you jump in the deep end of the pool where you know you can't swim, he rescues. What a beautiful picture. But he also tells them at the very end when he says, and let them, let my name be carried on, the name of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He's asking the Lord to grow this family, to build this family. It's amazing how much we talk about our own name. And what I mean is, is as you get older, we talk about the legacy. That's a famous, the legacy we're going to leave. And that's not an all bad thing. I think it's a good thing to be intentional about how your decisions and, and what you're doing, how it's going to impact the next couple generations. That's not totally bad. But we get really enamored with our own name and our own legacy, so much so that we forget what actually this is all about and what God is trying to do, which is to build His kingdom and not ours. Sometimes when we're talking about legacy, we're really talking about our kingdom. And we're about, like, okay, I'm going to build my kingdom. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I, I build my security for my kingdom. I build my hope and my joy in my kingdom. And I'll sprinkle some Jesus in there too. That will help my kingdom. What we see here is not a picture of Jacob, though it can feel like that, like, well, let them grow up in my name. Well, it's his name and the name of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. It's the covenant name. It's the name based on God's promises. It's not a glorification of Jacob's name. It's a fulfillment of what God has already promised according to his name. This is not a means by which Jacob's saying, like, let my legacy be memorialized for generations as these boys carry on my last name. It's that God's name will be proclaimed for generation upon generation upon generation. The Ford name is meaningless in comparison to the name of Jesus Christ. And I don't care if my children are known as Ford kids if they're not first known as God's kids. There's a big difference between those two. Well, you're a Ford. You're a Christian. 
you're a Jesus follower. That means something. And it means a heck of a lot more than being a Ford. Right? It's interesting that, again, Joseph tries to correct. So he looks up and he sees his dad, gray eyes, Bless them, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, dad, 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 dad. No, no, you got this wrong. He, it says he tried, he, you can imagine him. He's like, he, Jake's like, I don't think so, boy. Right? You're not moving my hands. And he goes, I know what I'm doing. And it says it displeased Joseph. He's bugged. He said, this isn't the way it's, this is not what I expect. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And even in that, we get a picture of something that's perhaps the most powerful thing. Like, Jacob doesn't go, oh, shoot, thanks for helping me out. He doesn't admit some mistake. He doesn't redo it. Instead, he says, I know. You see, after 147 years, old man Jacob, the man who attempted to cheat God and force his way, he realized one very powerful truth. And it's best we all learn this important truth. You can't control God. God is going to do what God is going to do. He is king, not us. And what we find is that God chooses whom He wants to choose. He blesses whom He wants to bless. And He makes decisions that don't often make sense to us and are often the very opposite of what we expect to see or know. But here's why. He sees and knows infinitely more than you and I ever will. And even as David, right? When David, the king, was being selected, the prophet was going to find him. And he goes to the family of Jesse. And Jesse's boys are like studs, right? They're like, hey, how you doing? And he's like, oh, this guy must be it. And then like, you know, next guy walks out. He's like, maybe it's this guy. And God's like, nope, not that guy. And next guy's like, Hey, how's it doing? He's like, well, maybe it's this guy. Like, no, it's the runt. It's the little runt who's out killing bears with rocks. David, the one who's a man after my own heart. He tells Samuel, who is the prophet, the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks deeper. And so Jacob knows that. He believes that. And he wants to pass that on to his sons. Basically, how God chooses to care for you as a shepherd, he knows what he's doing. Right? How he guides you, how he leads you, how he directs you. You're like, I don't think this is the right way. He's a shepherd. You're a sheep. Of course you don't think that. Do you trust him? He is going to keep you the way He's going to keep you. How He knows you should be kept. And He's going to redeem you the way He knows He should redeem you. Which means He's going to allow evil, even you, to make mistakes. But He is in control of it. He's a redeemer of all evil. Not remover of all evil. At least not right now. And He's a builder. He's going to build His kingdom the way He wants to build it. And as a pastor, that's a real struggle because I'd like Him to build it differently at times. Would you blow up this church? Would you make it do like this? And he's like, I'm going to build it the way I'm going to build it. I'm going to save who I'm going to save. And you best just trust me. Because I do what I do. 
and fighting it ain't going to work out well. Let me close with verse 20. There's a unifying message that, that Jacob is, um, I think, focusing, focusing us on. And that's this. He wants his boys and his grandsons and his descendants to walk with God. He wants them to walk with God. And verse 20 is powerful, although again, it's one of those things that we would just read past. It says, so he blessed them that day. So he's blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying. Okay, so he's blessed them with his big prayer. And now he's given them a second blessing about how they are going to be used to bless Israel in the future. So catch this. And this is the thing that he's saying, you're going to say in the future, Israel, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. What the snarf does that mean, right? He's like, this will be a blessing for all of Israel, every tribe, every generation. God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And so for generations, for thousands of years, did you know that every Sabbath, the Jews say that to this day. I know that because A, I have a whole side of my family that's Jewish. B, I've got friends that are Jewish and I ask them, what is with this blessing? And they said, we say it every Friday. As the sun goes down, we pray over our sons and our daughters this blessing. They say these words. And I go, why? And they say it's a very specific blessing for their children that they would walk in the ways of their father and mother and always follow the God of Israel. Now think about that. Every single week, these children are hearing May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. May you walk in the ways of your father and mother and follow the God of Israel. Every week they're hearing that their entire lives. May you walk in the ways of your father and mother and follow the God of Israel. Think of the implications for mom and dad praying that. May you walk in the ways... Ooh. How are my ways? are my ways right now. And just the impact on the children to be reminded of who you are every week after week after week after week. Why pray that every week? And here's, I think, the real simple truth. Let's just be real. We need to remind our children and we need to remind ourselves of who God is and who we are every week. We need that reminder. We need to be told of, of what we are called to do and, and who God has made us to be. And here's the, here's the little twist, right? Who are Ephraim and Manasseh? Like they receive an equal inheritance as Joseph's brothers do. But guess what? They're Egyptians. What does that even mean? It means they're adopted. Wait a second. Doesn't the Bible have a lot to say about adoption? into God's family, to all of us? Absolutely. The Bible says that we're all adopted into God's family 
through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we become co-heirs with him in the inheritance that God has for us. And so, just like Ephraim and Manasseh, who were adopted out of the world, that even though they were born into the world, they're going to grow up in the world, they're even going to prosper in the world, they are not of the world, and they are called and reminded every week to live differently in the world. What a reminder. To be reminded that this is not all there is. To be reminded that, yeah, follow the ways as we follow the Lord. And follow the Lord when we don't follow His ways. We need that reminder. Very simply, you want to summarize what we need? We need to walk in Jesus. Be reminded that we are hidden in Christ. That our identity is set in what He has done for us and not what we do. Or what we have done. Walk in Him. Be hidden in Him. Remember that Christ covers you and you are seen by God as if you are Him. And to walk with Him. Because guess what? You need a strength that you don't have. Why do I remember Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. I need Him to get through this life. I need Him to walk. And He gives me an example to follow. To walk like Him. Because I am walking the world, I am living in the world, and we are called and need to be reminded to walk differently, to walk in His promises, to walk in His strength, to walk for His glory. And I'll end with this. As much as many of us will think, man, I can't wait to my deathbed sermon because I'm going to write it up now. I'm going to put it on video. Like, oh, kids. Right? Here's what I wanted to tell you as I die. Let me just assure you that a deathbed sermon is super powerful, but it is not as powerful as the sermon you preach every day that you walk. You know that. You preach sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, declaring the glories of God and truth about Him or lies to your children and your friends. And I would call all of us who are Christians, those who claim the name of Jesus to consider the sermon that you're preaching now and not wait for the sermon you get to preach then. Consider the sermon you're preaching now. And if it's not a sermon that's proclaiming the truth of God's promises, repent. Because like Jacob, it's never too late to become faithful. This is why we come to the table every week. We come to, for those who are in Christ, to to experience that renewed life again. To be reminded that, you know what? There's infinite redos, infinite redos, and to become and cleanse and go, we're reminded this is who I am. And for those who are not in Christ, this is not for you, but I invite you to find your identity and your hope and your meaning, your joy in Jesus and not in the world because it will never satisfy. So as we come, we give our hearts, we give our tithes, we give our offerings, and then we give our voices to say, I really believe this. I truly believe this. Let's pray.